You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. In this episode, we're going to be listening to a conversation I had with four of my colleagues in Oakland, California on April 22nd, 2015, where we listened to songs that were resonant with narrative therapy principles. Because of copyright and fair use laws, I can only play short excerpts from the songs. So I encourage you to go to YouTube, search for narrative therapy playlist, and listen to the full versions. You can also look at the lyrics online so you can follow along. We're gonna, we start by introducing ourselves and then get into the first song. Enjoy. So I'm Will Sherwin. Zamira Singer. My name is Scott Ralston. Terry Bicker. I'm Joelle Eyre. Thank you all for joining me. And for this first song, I thought I'd play Nina Simone's version of Ain't Got No, I've Got Life, which she adapted from the musical Hair. But just listen for any themes that sort of strike you that seem evocative of narrative therapy. Ain't got no friends, ain't got no schooling. So I think of this song as having three parts. The first part is like a list of things she doesn't have. The second part, she asks three questions, but what have I got? Why am I alive anyway? What have I got that no one can take away? And the third part is a list of things she does have. And focusing on the first part first, I know when working in community mental health, there's a lot of descriptions of people that are just like a list of deficits and a list of things they don't have. And I'm just thinking about that tendency to describe people as a list of deficits and what that can do to people and how it shapes us to think of our own lives that way. And I wonder um, what the song might be evocative uh, about to other people. So it made me think of the preferred, creating the preferred story and that the ain't got no is, is the, you know, the negative story or the, the deficit story the, I forgot the exact term in narrative right now. People are coming in and they're saying, I don't have anything, you know, or I'm, I'm awful. I'm terrible. You know, these, these are all the things that are wrong with me. And the shift to just kind of noticing all all the good that is happening. You know, I, I got my feet, got my toes, got my liver, you know, like these kind of basic, basic things that we have functioning and, and transforming that into, you know, having life and that being something really valuable and important. One thing I've definitely gotten from narrative therapy is that whenever someone is described 
just as a list of deficits or things they don't have. I know that's not a complete description of the person. That there's something else that's possible. Some other way of uh, describing a person that a list is never going to really uh, do justice to a person. This song, I guess, speaks to that to me. To me, that there's that there's something else possible, even with someone who <coughs> may not have all these things that we think are like very important. That there's some some other way of living that's possible besides just uh, such a deficit-focused way of having someone's identity be described. Um, and I, I hear like Nina Simone talk about things she does have, <coughs> her body, um, her life, her freedom, as being like her way of finding this alternative to just seeing her life in terms of what she doesn't have. Yeah, uh, it, it kind of inspires me to, to know that there is there is some alternative that's possible. Um, and it doesn't have to be exactly what Nina Simone is singing about here, but, but I still get that feeling of there's an alternative to this, to this kind of like deficit lifing happens. And I also hear in, this, in the third part, and she's talking about things, I've got my fingers, I've got my toes, that she's really taking a stand on that these things matter and are significant. You know, talking about your body, it's easy to kind of have that be disqualified as not as important as having a family and a job and things like that. And I hear her taking a stand that these things are significant, these things that I have. I was really struck when she said, I ain't got no God, because there's, that's kind of like the deepest level I can think of and the deepest level of despair. But then, you know, she turns it around and it, it reminded me of an experience that I had recently um, doing a training with the um, Santa Clara County, Santa Clara County, um, where it was, it was a, a training about working with African-American clients. And the man who did it was an older African-American psychologist. And at one point during the, the presentation, he said, I'm a black man. I've experienced discrimination. I've dis experienced this. I've experienced that. And, and then he sort of held himself with dignity and said, and I have spirit, and I have a man who has, and then all those things. And it was very powerful for me to see that. It's very reminiscent of the song. So not to forget that. <laughs> um, I need to confess that I have a strong um, lifelong connection to these songs that for me evokes narrative therapy in a, in a different way in terms of my own story and what these songs have meant to me. Um, I was about 11 uh, or maybe 12, probably 12 in 1979 when Milos Forman's version of the Broadway musical Hair was released. And my parents, who are usually conservative in their movie choices, actually took us to see this movie um, yeah, I think my younger sister was long too, which is kind of weird now to think about. Um, and it was, um, it was just mind blowing for me. Aside from it being the first time I saw naked people on screen in a movie, um, just 
the colors and the costumes and the dance, the Twyla Tharp choreography and the singing and the, um, the um, way that that period of time in American history, which oddly enough to me as a 12-year-old seemed, you know, it might as well have been the American Revolution. And I only later came to understand that it was, you know, eight years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago. And I went on to see that movie. I think I saw it at that time, of course, pre-video cassettes in the movie theater maybe a dozen times. And I had the the movie soundtrack, which is really different from the Broadway soundtrack. And I would listen to it over and over and over again. I knew every song on this thing backward and forwards. And what I thought about the first time Will played the Nina Simone version for me, you had sent it around online a while back, is how... So the two songs are very separate songs in the film and I think in the original show and how she brought them together to create and how this meaning got created out of them through the juxtaposing of the two songs. But for me, what strikes me is when you think about Nell Carter singing and got no in the original one, that there's no that that is an incredibly joyous song. There's no sense of sadness or lack. It's about the hippie movement of the 60s. And the hippies living in Central Park, and they are rejoy. I mean, it's a, and I recommend everyone watch it because it's beautifully choreographed, just gorgeous, gorgeous sequence. That whole early sequence was shot on location in Central Park, and my family had come from New York, and I was growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, and I became fascinated with Central Park and with the hippie movement. Um, and literally, I my you know, as a sixth grader, I had to go look up words in the dictionary, you know, to understand things that were going on in the song and. You know, so I'm cut out a number of the raunchy parts, like ain't got no underwear and I got my ass and those kind of things. But um, and she has boobs instead of tits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The song was sung by a man in the film. You know, so my first reaction when you brought out the song and you know, I was God, the song is so familiar, and I just think of that movie and how many times I saw it. And I, I mean, when video cassette recorders first came out, I was just thrilled because I knew I could watch Hair over and over again. It just really something moved me about it, and I do think. And I never quite made that connection right now thinking about it. There was something about the freedom and the lust for life of these characters that for me, a fairly sheltered, you know, pre-adolescent girl growing up in the suburbs of Chicago um, in a pretty traditional middle class um, two-parent family felt so thrilling and exciting and they're this sort of anthem that they could sing to not having anything and not needing anything was so opposed to the middle American capitalist life that I was living, that it, it just entered me into this whole world. And I would listen, sing these songs and feel this incredible sense of freedom. And I can still feel that even now, 35 years later, I, I can feel really feel that sense of sort of freedom and excitement listening to those songs. So thank you for reintroducing those songs into my life. You're welcome. That was really cool, Joelle, just to, to consider all the different meanings you could take, like in a different context from that song. Like I kind of leapt to the same conclusions about sort of a deficits-based story and what kind of possibilities, how it kind of constrained your... And I was kind of surprised that the song was able to get out of that cul-de-sac and go in a different direction. Um, it reminds me... I mean, it's all coming back to my community mental mental health experience. Like, it reminds me of reading an assessment about somebody, sort of a list of um, of problems and lacks, and then uh, the conclusions that you that it just becomes so scary. I, I think of it as sort of a, a horror story about people, and I have to be really careful to not let that inform my 
my ideas about who the person is because it's so easy to color your interactions with people. Um, but it's really neat to consider how many different meanings you could take from the song based on the context and um, yeah, all of our our interpretations. It's it's really fun. <laughs> I was hoping there would be some fun that came out of this <laughs> evening, so that's nice to hear. <laughs> One of the first uh, quotes about narrative therapy that helped me was this quote that we're, we're profoundly affected by the discourses around us. And one of the things that uh, this guy Kenneth Gergen wrote in his book, The Saturated Self, Dilemmas of Identity in Contemporary Life, he said that in our times, it's not like there's just one discourse that people are living with, there's multiple discourses. And it's actually called it multifrenia, because we're so exposed to multiple discourses. And it's, it's not like there's this one path of whether you're a sinner or not, um, or anything like that. We're supposed to multiple cultural perspectives and values, and it can be a little disorienting. So this song made me think a little bit about that. This is by Sixto Rodriguez. This is called This Is Not A Song, It's An Outburst, or The Establishment Blues. Drinking at a stoplight, miniskirt is flirting. I can't stop, so I'm hurting. Spencer sells her hopeless chest. Adultery plays the kitchen. Bigot cops than fiction. The little man gets shafted. Sons and money's drafted. Living by a timepiece. New war in the Far East. Can you pass the Rorschach test? It's a hassle, it's an educated guess. Well, frankly, I couldn't care less. That song kind of captures the, the feeling of here we are in 2015, exposed to you know, so many different discourses about health and the news. And, and then some of the stuff from psychology is his line, can you pass the Rorschach test? <laughs> So after all this, there's still another discourse of like, are you, do you pass these mental health tests? And I, I guess I just play that as, it reminds me of the context of, of, of our times. Um, this multifrenia um, being saturated with so many different discourses coming kind of rapid fire after another. And this may be different than what a lot of humanity has um, dealt with before, just in the sheer pace of it all and the sheer complexity and the sheer amount of uh, difference and uh, different perspectives. It's funny, it took me in a different place. I mean, it it's sounded very culturally situated in the 60s. And maybe that was also because Joel was just talking about hair and the context of hair. So then my mind is really in the music of that time and how important music was and is still for people, but um, how kind of one of the ways that, that people deal with the craziness of society is by making art about it, making music about it. And like in a way, in a weird way, I feel like having conversations with people about their lives that are creative conversations does a similar type of thing um, in that 
it invites standing in a different place. Um, putting music to something makes it more somehow more palatable. Sometimes we can understand it in different ways. So, you know, I, I was thinking about the 60s and that time, and then I kind of from the Nina Simone song, too, I was thinking about this quote from another song by Mostaf, who's a fairly politicized rapper from, like, the 90s, and he has a song called Rock and Roll that's kind of about the history of white people appropriating the music of black culture that was particularly developed to get through tragic situations you know and there there's a line that he has that like my great-grandmother was born on a reservation my grandmother was born on a plantation they sing songs to deal with that fucked up situation you know and so that that was kind of where this took me was like music is what people do when things are fucked up right and it's one of the ways that they make it make it work make life work get through it um getting through hard times that that whole thing well and it's it's interesting to contextualize the time it was written with your question about is now you asked whether now was you know there were we were more embedded in discourses now than at other times I think the discourses change and maybe now we're we hear more of them and we and they shift more quickly in some ways because with the access to so much more information and things moving so quickly um but certainly he's responding to those discourses of that time and it could have been written at any time you know since then yeah. it's like he's describing a kind of dystopia with um then you can hear from his voice that he's sort of rejecting it and trying to take a stance outside of all of all of uh what's happening it makes me hmm, it makes me think of especially the part about do you pass the rorschach test it's like um social control and kind of this idea from modernism that there can be an absolute kind of truth or measure yeah and how hard it is to get outside of i guess you don't get outside of it it's it's there um they're side by side you just absorb all these different narratives like you were describing. Hmm. It's interesting to also, in a way, to respond to a song that's so, um, I guess this is how music is different from conversation, or it's, you know, popular music is different from conversation, but that uh, we we're talking about how the first song felt almost like a list, like a list of problems. And this almost feels like a list of problems, like cultural problems, you know, but, and yet there's a sort of flipness to it too that I, you know, it's like when a client comes in and is going through a list of problems and you want to stop and ask more questions and and get, I mean, it's a pretty thin um, narrative that he puts forth um, as a, you know, as opposed to, you know, where, where you could really explore any of those lines that get tossed out and understand it in a, in a sort of richer and more meaningful way. Zamira's comment about healing and music and turning to music for healing uh, made me think of this song by Eric Clapton, Tears in Heaven. So I don't know if you know the context of that, but he had a, a four-year-old son who fell out of a building and died, but it was, I think it was like 1978. And so within the year, he had written this song with a friend of his called Tears in Heaven. He has some quote that, you know, he turned to music um, for healing. 
and it, it helped him. And this song, um, writing this, the process of writing the song and performing it helped him. So this is Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. <laughs> Imagine what that might be like. I'm not a parent myself, but to lose your four-year-old son um, to an accident like that, how how would you go about, you know, any kind of healing from that? And when I hear that that song, it sounded like the place that he says he found healing was in the songwriting, but also in kind of imagination and in what David Epson calls, you know, the counter worlds. You know, he's imagining this encounter in heaven, this imagination going this place beyond the door, imagining it was this, was a place of healing for him and writing something about it. He wrote some of the lines, the basic, the first line and the premise, and then he had a friend write some of the rest of it, which I think is really interesting too. His friend was like, you know, this is kind of personal. Maybe you should write it, but he asked a friend to help, and his friend did this kind of like portraiture, which is something David Epson's talked about. He could kind of fill some of it in and um, also performing it in front of an audience, having an audience hear this, uh, knowing what it was about a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. There's something profoundly healing for him in that. Mm -hmm. And he said he doesn't perform the song so much anymore, but he did for a number of years. It, it makes me think of that the powers that are in this counter world or in imagination and it's in this subjunctive tense. Well, it, it's like someone can go somewhere in the imaginative, imaginative world and then come back from it. The line that kept just sparkling to me was, I know I just can't stay here in heaven. And like this, like, wow, you know, this desire to like, wow, I want to be with, this child right and I can't stay here and how kind of having that that imagination interaction or that you know I think about in in working with clients you know and inviting them to invite in the voice of someone who is no longer in the world <coughs> with them and it helps them realize that they've brought that that person's energy their um you know, perspective, their love, whatever, that the connection's still there, you know, and that that helps one move on from it. So it was just, like, really, really powerful. Yeah, and I, I wonder about, you know, what it was like for for him to perform that and see the effect of that on his audience and, you know, like, what kind of things people maybe wrote 
or responded to like what other people had lived through that the way of like creating a community around a moment of suffering and realizing that you're not alone in it is profoundly healing so like imagine him like sitting and singing that invoke that and see its effect on a whole crowd full of people sometimes <laughs> my thoughts are actually not very narrative therapy oriented but i used to be a hospital chaplain and be with parents when their children were dying and and had died so i know that um, what i call white hot grief and the unspeakable nature of it the the words to this song were sort of painful for me um because he's he's there and not there he wants to be there and he is you know it's this kind of um would it be the same would you know my name um would you hold my hand would you help me stand it's like wow it's, it really is a um it's a painful song to me to hear Thank you. This next song I want to play, I got from the Dulwich Center Facebook group. I emailed the group and asked if anyone had any songs that were evocative of narrative therapy. And Darya Kutuzova from Moscow sent me this song by Dar Williams and Joan Baez called You're Aging Well. Why is it that as we grow older and stronger Signs point us adrift and make us afraid. Saying you never can win. Watch your back. Where's your husband? I don't like the signs that the sign makers make. So I'm gonna steal out with my paint, my brushes. I'll change the directions. I'll hit every street. It's the Dancel Town scandal, the Robin Hood vandal. She goes out and steals the king. So glad that you finally made it here You thought nobody cared But I did, I could tell And this is your year And it always starts here And oh, you're aging well Is there any lines that kind of stood out for anybody? Curious? The line that really um, stuck out for me was, I'm so glad you finally made it here. It was really beautiful. And it seems to be two stories of mental illness where um, music actually was the healing component, it seemed. And it said, you didn't think anybody cared, but we did. And we're so glad you made it. It's I don't know, it's very touching to me because I do think that when people have mental illness, it does feel so alone. And um, it must make all the difference to know that somebody does care and is with you. Thank you. Some of the lines that stood out for me was she says, I didn't like the signs the sign makers made. And um, I can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) 
There's a lot of signs that are floating out there about how to live, what a good life is, what a good person is that I don't like, you know, and it bothers me. And I, I, I like that there are people working on different signs for, you know, good living or, um, you know, living if you don't have things that qualify you as winning the American dream or something. Uh, I like that people are just working on alternative signs than what are out there that don't fit for some people. And I was struck by that line too about, um, we're so glad you finally made it here. Everyone has skills of survival that they help them make it to where they are. That line is evocative for me of that. Um, the question I keep wanting to ask is, so who else are you? Thank you. So what are some of the signs what are some of the signs that that you don't agree with? Because I, I have signs too that I don't agree with, but I, I, I really like that idea. I don't know. I just I have to go on Facebook and just you know look at whatever in the front of my feed. Uh, I don't know. You know, ten signs you're in a healthy relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. All the checklists. How to tell if you you know? I don't know. If you're this type, uh, you know, um, all that kind of stuff that's just, you know, it's just floating around. And um, I think there's a lot of stuff around, like, like a lot of signs that, you know, the good life is to become a healthy individual. The good life is to, um, yeah, succeed at certain things. Um, I, I'm not, I don't. I, those signs just are kind of rub me the wrong way, even if I haven't found like a clear alternative. But one thing I liked about, you know, Michael Wyatt and David Epstein and the other narrative folks, it seems like they weren't just pointing to this is the way to become a healthy individual. It seemed like they were pointing to something else, even if I can't articulate it right now. Um, and that's something else is the thing I'm, you know, to like I'm devoted part of my life to. Um, it's not about painting signs this is what healthy is this is what success is this is what good person is um there are alternatives to living that way and that's what i'm interested in well, the that con sorry the concept of health as a metaphor for um was being in the world is so dangerous i mean i have clients all the time you know who use that metaphor and who think of themselves as unhealthy in some way and question their choices and behavior by holding it up to some notion of what health means yeah it's a it's a really dangerous metaphor I think um, I also had to look up the lyrics to the song it's and it has so much complexity into it um, but what struck me is in in reading it was that she she seems to really be talking about the notion by signs of signs as a metaphor for what we talk about what you know in in terms of of discourses in, in postmodern therapies. Um, and I, I, I mean, she seems to be talking about anorexia um, down towards third from the last stanza. Um, when, I was, when I was 15, I knew it was over. The road to enchantment was not mine to take because lower calf, upper arm should be half of what they are. I was breaking the laws that the sign makers made. And all I could eat was the poisonous apple, and that's not a story I was meant to survive. I was all out of choices, but the woman of voices 
she turned around the corner with music around her she gave me the language that keeps me alive and that really Mm -hmm. kind of um struck me as being a very postmodern notion you think of like harleen anderson's work and the notion of language and you know kenneth gergen all those folks and the notion of language as being um generative and how um new meaning getting created through language and I assume for the writer through through song and through voice and through through singing to stand up to those discourses and and laws and but how there are truly um like pretty harsh consequences for breaking those laws makes me think of I'm really interested in language that keeps people alive you know in different contexts too when you were talking about not liking the signs and not being entirely uh, able to articulate that, I was thinking that all those signs really relate only to an individual. It doesn't relate to the context. It doesn't relate to the society. And we can't forget that we are not just individuals plowing ahead. You know, that's somebody who has a lot of privilege that can do that. But if you look at people, we are all held in a context that is very significant in creating who we are. That reminds me of a quote from Michael White where he talks about that one of the goals of narrative therapy is the repopulation of the identity and that that his understanding was that by taking people out of their context and individualizing them which was a function of you know capitalism basically (laughs) that 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 led to you know the sense of distress the sense of disconnection depression anxiety like all these you know mental illnesses and you know it's it's no joke when you look at your you know facebook feed or like whatever and it's got a million tests to figure out like you know, do you measure up to some criteria? It's violent. I mean, like that kind of taking that in all the time is it's violent to a sense of being part of the world, being interconnected. It like, you know, pulls you out of your life and sets you, you know, on some little pedestal to then be like measured and checked and see I, I don't, it just, it brings up a lot of intense sort of interest to me of like how we're talking about mental health now and like the more thing there, there come to be these like entrenched beliefs about like what is healthy and people are like checking themselves in all these ways all the time to figure out, you know, do they fit? Thanks to Samira Singer, Scott Ralston, Terry Becker, and Joelle Eyre for joining me for the first musical narrative salon. 
And if you know any songs that are particularly moving for you in your work and narrative practices, just send them to me at www.sherwin at gmail.com. And if uh, you have any comments or reflections, send those over too. I enjoy getting emails and I will reply back. The bird song you heard at the beginning was a nightingale recorded at a forest north of Cologne, Germany by Rian Samba. They found through freesound.org, generously put up through the Creative Commons license. And the idea of starting the show with uh, an animal call comes from listening to Derek Jensen's podcast, Resistance Radio, on the Progressive Radio Network. What you're listening in the background is from Nick Bomarito, his track Lhasa. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening.